there is this point in, in, in intelligent design where the intelligence recognizes that it is not the center. It is not, you know, that, that this fungus, this fungus and this bacteria that are actively changing everything on this planet. And maybe we're just a byproduct of the work that, that they're doing in a non-intelligent way. Welcome everyone to part two of this two-part episode of Into the Impossible with special guest, visionary investor and business leader, David Friedberg. We're finding out firsthand why companies like Alphabet and BlackRock trust David with over $300 million of their capital to transform agriculture and other vital industries. Be forewarned, this two-parter may feel a bit like drinking from a fire hose and part two isn't slowing down. Our host, Brian Keating, dives deep with David into a wide range of topics. In part two, we get existential questions about consciousness, ecosystems, and extraterrestrial intelligence, and the role science fiction has played in David's life. Find out what David thinks about the future of energy production, solar, fission, or fusion. Stay in touch with Professor Keating by signing up for his mailing list at briankeating.com list. And if you have a .edu email, we'll send you a piece of deep space in the form of a rare meteorite fragment. While you ponder this immersive discussion, please consider investing in us with a five-star rating and sharing your thoughts in a review like this one. Air user says, incredible content, exploring the deepest questions in science in an entertaining way without compromising on rigor or a deeply scientific orientation. And now, get ready to stretch your perspective with host Brian Keating going into the impossible with David Friedberg. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. We're talking today with uh, David Friedberg, who's a renowned thinker, investor, prolific, um, kind of curious person. Who I see you as a ponderer, if, I, if I'd like to say. I see you as an optimistic pessimist or pessimistic optimist. And it's really a delight to speak with you. Uh, and you can, uh, of course, uh, follow him wherever podcasts are sold and bought and on Twitter at, at Friedberg um, as well, where he's uh, sometimes active. Now, the, uh, the next question comes, as I say, from, uh, uh, from one of my listeners, and he asks, is there a possibility in your life, in our lifetime, that aging could be suspended? That comes from Reynold Cherry. Can aging be suspended? Yeah, I think... Uh, or will yeah, it be we, in our we, lifetime? We talked, yeah. yeah, so um, we, we have to... So how do we measure aging and what are the drivers of aging? Um, you know, uh, the, the, the genome uh, codes all the, the proteins that biology makes, uh, the, the genome of a species or an organism. And um, there's long been this kind of set of theories that um, mutations in the genome over time, um, you know, entropy kind of drives the genome to, to, to kind of or disorientation. And as a result, it, it stops producing the right proteins and cells become dysfunctional. And eventually they, they stop working right. And then you get things like cancer, maybe Alzheimer's. Uh, or they just stop working altogether, you go blind and you die. I mean, you know, um, the dysfunction of uh, gene expression, mm. um, the wrong proteins expressed at the wrong time, really is kind of seems to be the core driver of aging. Um, now, we thought historically maybe this was driven by mutations in the DNA uh, in, in cells that accumulate over time. And increasingly, there's evidence as published a few weeks ago in two different papers, um, uh, including one out of uh, um, by, led by a team out of Harvard, that... Um, 
It may be dysfunctions not in the genome, in the DNA, but actually dysfunctions in the epigenome, which is the molecules that sit on the DNA. And um, certain molecules allow the DNA to be more openly expressed because it opens up the nucleosomes, has more space, and then uh, the RNA copies come out uh, more proliferately, and then more copies of that gene are expressed. And in some cases, it blocks the, the genome and, and, and turns off or shuts off certain genes. And um, that as these molecules kind of get ripped off, and some get put on in the wrong way, we're seeing dysfunctional gene expression in a cell, which causes the wrong proteins to be made, and the right proteins are missing, and then the cell as a whole stops working. The cell gets inflamed, eventually it dies, mm -hmm. all this sort of bad stuff starts to happen. And that that may be, at this point, the likely driver of aging. So it's an accumulation of errors in the epigenome in cells throughout the body. Now, the exciting science um, is what we talked about earlier, which is the set of Yamanaka factors, these four molecules that have these transcription factors that have been proven to go in and help reset the epigenome. And if you apply enough of the Yamanaka factors into a cell, the epigenome resets in a way that that whole cell starts acting like a stem cell mm. and it can differentiate into any other cell in the body. Like it was when but it you, was a, or a more primitive version of itself. Right. And, and it turns out that you can actually partially reprogram a cell, which means you just make you reset the epigenome so that that cell starts to work like it's supposed to work like mm -hmm. for, for that, whether, it, you know, there's about 200 different cell types in the human body. So whether it's a brain cell or an eye cell or a skin cell or a heart cell, a muscle cell, um, you can kind of apply a small amount of those transcription factors to that cell and actually get it to act in a younger way. And this was demonstrated in improving the lifespan of mice. Mm -hmm. By applying this, um, uh, this, 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 first they disrupted the epigenome, then they applied these Yamanaka factors to the mice, and then the mice became young and they lived twice as long, and they they were healthier and everything was better. Their cognitive functioning went up, heart rates went up, you know, all the good all, heart started working better, etc. Um, so that's a great, you know, let's go back to pure science. Like that's where we are. We have this kind of pure scientific like trajectory. Where this takes us, what's the scrum on the rugby field, to use the analogy once again, mm -hmm. on what this is going to look like from a therapeutic perspective, from a business model perspective, and how long will it take us to get down the field? Totally TBD. There are all these ideas that we can take, for example, eye cells and rejuvenate them and then put them back in and the eyes will work better. That we can maybe um, take certain immune cells out of our blood, rejuvenate them, put them back in and the immune cell starts functioning better. Um, that maybe this can be used to regulate um, uh, um, neurons and get the brain to work a little bit better. So, you know, how do you deliver the right uh, transcription factors? And, and then there's all this research, by the way, that maybe it's not just those four transcription factors that were demonstrated that won the Nobel Prize mm -hmm. by Yamanaka, but maybe there's thousands of other transcription factors, or maybe there's human engineered transcription factors. And then how do we get those transcription factors in the right dose into the right cell at the right time? So that's all the work that's going to be going on for... I don't, I can't possibly predict for how long, you know, there will be inklings of advances along the way, certain businesses, someone will come up with some therapeutic where maybe they'll do something to some cell in the body and it'll work and mm. they'll get it productized and, you know, um, but yes, I do think that this idea that, um, you know, cells, um, uh, the human body as a whole, which is um, kind of a, it's, it's such a dynamic biochemical bag. <laughs> like, you know, can we control the entropy in that bag? Um, it turns out that there may be some keys to doing that. Mm. Um, and that's super exciting science. So you mentioned and that, that. Yes, I do think like, yeah, we, I do think we can see persistence in the human form for a lot longer than we have today um, into the hundreds of years. Th theoretically, I mean, you could theorize any answer to that. Yeah. Uh, you could say, yes, certainly keep the human alive forever.
Yeah, and the um, best part is keep rejuvenating yourself. If yeah. it's falsified and it doesn't occur in your lifetime, you're dead. So it doesn't matter to you. Um, you mentioned rugby a couple times. <clears throat> One of my good friends uh, is an engineer. He's from South Africa. Loves the Springboks or whatever they're called. He's uh, Gabi Gavin here in San Diego, and uh, I think he'd be curious to know um, you. Uh, your parents are from South Africa. Um, I, were you born there, or I, were you born in South Africa? Yeah, I was born there. I moved. I, I moved from Cape Town when I was six years old to LA. So you can't be president, uh, unfortunately, of America. Cannot be president. Uh, yeah. But um, why did why did your parents leave? And what would there be any sort of uh, you know thing that would bring you back? We have a lot of uh, South Africans here in San Diego. It's a huge part of our community here. Um, I, I think yep. we're rumored to live here in La Jolla and San Diego because of the weather and the climate and the topography. It's um, just like Cape Town. Yeah. Well, why did they leave? And yep. uh, and would you ever? Could you ever see a, a scenario where you would? go back permanently or temporarily sabbatical or something like that? No, I mean, apartheid uh, was ending in the early to mid 80s. It was evident that it was going to end and the country was going to change over quite a bit, which meant that there was a lot of kind of geopolitical risk and uncertainty about the economic and physical climate. And so uh, that's when a lot of people left. So we left and my parents, most of my family moved to London on both sides of my family. And then um, my parents are documentary filmmakers. They wanted to go to LA. So we oh, went no. to LA and they worked in, um, in film. I, I've, I've, yeah, there's nothing that motivates me to go to South Africa except to visit and take my kids and show them and check it out and hang out. Cape Town, so I do remember Cape Town being beautiful. I went back once since I left. Um, but uh, yeah, there's there's no reason I would kind of go back there. I, obviously, so much of my work and friends and family are, are all here at yeah. this point. Absolutely. Um, there is, you know, obviously a lot of scientific um, collaborations that flourish. We have collaborators there in South Africa, UCT and other places. So shout out to them. My friend Amanda Veltman, professor down there. Um, next up, uh, I am the associate director of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination here at UC San Diego. And I'm always interested, you know, Sir Arthur was uh, very, very, of course, conversant with uh, with uh, science fact and is, you know, purportedly responsible for, you know, concepts like geostationary satellites, although, you know, some people debate that. But um, but nevertheless, he presaged many things in, in, uh, in, his, in his works, including things like the iPad and, and uh, you know, permanent uh, hab habituation on the space station. Uh, science fiction, though, play any role in your in your life? Have you uh, are you uh, part, uh, attracted to any particular science fiction authors? And if so, do you think science fiction has a role to play in science nonfiction? In other words, as a way to kind of pregame or, or kind of thought uh, think out things uh, for for science actual in practice? Yeah, look, I mean, I think one of the um, extraordinarily important role science fiction plays is thinking in first principles. Take away where we are today and the comparatives and the comparables of the world today and try and, ex and everyone tries to extend those comparatives and those comparables. Strip it all away and just say, what do the first principles of X tell me and what's possible based on those first principles? And based on that, I can kind of theorize this incredibly different universe. And then I can think about all the paths that get us from here to there. And you know, um, I'll give one example and then I'll talk about Arthur C. Clarke. Um, yeah. Star Trek, The Next Generation, my favorite show of all time, right? <laughs> and, you know, like the universe is just matter and energy. And if we can kind of harness energy to uh, reorient matter, uh, I mean, so much of what goes on in biology, in, in humans moving our physical bodies around, it's like, it's, it's so crazy because it's just like moving molecules from one place to another. And then we kind of absorb this information um, in the form of photons. 
And, uh, and those photons ultimately resolve some biochemical change in our neural network, which right. is a bunch of molecules. And, a bunch and of so those photons yeah. are just influencing the physical structure of our, of our molecules in our, what we call our body, <laughs> which by the way, our body will be a whole different set of molecules in a couple of years anyway. Right. Um, if you're tracking a molecule all the way through its kind of lifetime. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think, um, Star Trek The Next Generation did a great job. One of the things about Star Trek The Next Generation I always appreciated was the, um, the replicator, this idea that like if we can actually fully harness energy and just reorient molecules locally instead of running through all these physical, you know, humans started with mechanical engineering, uh, you know, and then we did like chemical engineering and now we do biochemical engineering, which is actually changing these really complex biomolecules to do more machine crazy chemical yeah. manipulations for us. Yeah, mach machining molecules for us. Um, and, you know, there's elements of physics where we're kind of doing interesting manipulation now uh, on an atomic scale, right? Atomic layer deposition. I, it could be called chemical engineering, but <laughs> maybe a little different. Um, so much of, of that, I think, paints a picture that this trajectory maybe is reasonable, which is that in the future, we can kind of take carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, and maybe a few other kind of heavier elements and just reorient them locally using some set of technologies to instantaneously make the things we want and that the only cost is energy. And then if the cost of energy is free, well, holy shit, now humans live in this extraordinarily abundant universe and we can make anything we want and, you know, and, and go nuts and live our kind of abundant lifestyles. Um, Star Trek had all these really great theories around what happens in that world, which is like the economy collapses. <laughs> yeah. Does society collapse? Turns yeah, out right. in Star Trek, it doesn't. I'm not sure if that would really happen here. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think my orientation and my level of interest in the work I do is how do we get to a point where the economy does go to zero, mm -hmm. where the cost of everything does go to zero, where every human can have an, everything they want because the technology is sufficiently advanced that we can kind of just reorient molecules locally using you know infinitely abundant energy to have the physical experiences we want all the time and give ourselves kind of extraordinary like adventure and exploration potential and so on. That, that's, that's, I think, the right kind of North Star for, yeah. you know, human civilization, kind of socially engineering, uh, you know, our long-term outcome. Now, that brings me to Arthur C. Clarke. And in 2001, um, there was a treatment written by Arthur C. Clarke before the script. And then the book was written after the script. And I don't yeah. know if you've ever read the treatment. The Sentinel or something, right? Uh, no, it, the Sentinel was an old story. The treatment for the movie, uh, I'll send it to you. I've got yeah. two copies of it. Um, yeah. But it came in the art. It came in the, the there was a, a Tashian book series on on a 2000, the making of two thousand one, and they actually included it in the Tasha book series. So I've got it. It's an incredible read. Oh yeah, because he highlights how like at the beginning, uh, if you think about a sufficiently advanced civilization, this is also leads into my point of view on like extraterrestrials and UFOs and and, and so on, which I think are very naive human thoughts, um, because a sufficiently advanced civilization looks a lot more like a, what I just described, which is the ability to harness energy to make any molecule into anything locally. Mm -hmm. And then the universe is simply about information transmissal, transmittal, so yes. transmission. So the, the transmission of photons to, to, um, from one point to another provides you everything you need to accumulate more knowledge and more understanding of the universe and maybe gravitational waves too or whatever, whatever other kind of insights we can gather from the universe Trinos, around us. Right. <laughs> but every, everything from you and I staring at a screen today is photons flowing into our eyes, DNA sequencers, are photons being scanned on an optical scanner? A lot of the work you do in cosmology, or the the, the um, you know the experimental physics, is, is is some sort of sensor gathering of photons. So if the universe, if ultimately the universe is just about photons providing information about where and what other molecules in the universe are doing, and we can sufficiently gather those photons, and then we sufficiently can move molecules around using energy to make anything we want locally, what is the purpose of interstellar travel? 
Right. It, it, it suddenly, it suddenly doesn't make sense. Why would I take my physical body to go to another planet if I could gather the information from that planet and recreate and take whatever I need from that planet and make it locally? Also, humans' ability to kind of do things like, you know, um, uh, kind of transmutation of elements. Like if I could make heavy elements, I don't need to go mine heavy elements from an asteroid or something. I can just use energy can do that for me, as you know. So yeah. if I can capture enough energy, I can ma manipulate molecules any way I want. And I can gather the photons from around the universe to figure out what's going on. I don't need to go anywhere uh, as, as, a, as a, a, an intelligent species. Um, and so that was the premise defined and, and described better than I just did in the treatment that Arthur C. Clarke wrote for 2001, oh. which is the universe is the, the galaxy is just like a network with a bunch of nodes on it. And those nodes were the monoliths and they were transmitting and accumulating information because you don't need to have a physical body go out there to transmit and gather information. And you don't need to physically gather molecules anymore because you have the tech, technical ability to do that all locally. And then the, 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 um, you know, the, 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 the transmission and collection of information is the role of intelligent species at that point. Mm. Um, and, and you don't need to kind of move around and do stuff. So it kind of, in a, in a sufficiently advanced civilization, you don't need to move things around with UFOs and, and you know, so on and so forth. Um, so that was a really kind of uh, profound thought. And then I think that there's another really important profound thought, which is that species at some point realizes my individual interest as an information gathering entity or body you kind of get at some point a little bit selfless, <laughs> sufficiently advanced. And you realize that it is the aggregation of bodies or the aggregation of molecules, perhaps, that are the creators and absorbers and transmitters of information. And it is not the individual body itself. Um, like there's a book called Parasite Rex, which uh, talks about microbes and parasites that infect organisms and then control those organisms. And that, you know, we talked a little bit about the gut biome earlier, but humans' mood and behavior is so dramatically driven by their gut microbiome. Yeah. There's tens of trillions of organisms, are we controlling our body or the organisms controlling our body? If the words I'm saying and the feelings I'm having are driven by some set of organisms in my gut, uh, or, you know, there's some really good examples of like a, a, a bacteria that infects an ant, and then the ant gets eaten by a sheep. The ant, when it gets infected, the ant climbs to the top of a blade of grass, the sheep eats the blade of grass, so the ant goes in the sheep's gut, and then the bacteria proliferates in that gut, gets pooped out again, and infects the next ant. And that's the way that this gut bacteria drives itself, um, is it, it actually forces ants to go crazy and, dry, and climb up the blade of grass, and that's where they get eaten. And just and to, like, sorry to interrupt, of, there's a research yeah. by a friend, we mentioned her earlier in the context of COVID, but uh, this is a Kim Prather, a chemistry national academy, I think of science and engineering. She has this, um, um, you know, done research in the role that microbes play in the atmospheric rivers phenomenon of you know that we just experienced recently in california so so that's where microbes are somehow seeding and uh, providing you know seeds and, and nucleation sites for droplets which then proliferate and cause these huge deluges which then causes uh the curing of droughts which had stressed the microbial colony so there in other words the microbes are not only affecting you know us and maybe more than us as you know ed young wrote and i contain multitudes and everything you know as you said earlier yeah. we're more microbe than human whatever that means but they may actually be geoengineering the planet, which is really remarkable. Totally. That these, how do they know how to do this? But anyway, sorry to interrupt, but continue. Well, no, I mean, that's, that's my point. I think humans have a very human-centric point of view <laughs> on the universe. Yeah. <laughs> like, you and know, like we, 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 yeah, we, yeah, we, it is. It really is. Like, there, I think that there is this point in, in, in intelligent design where the intelligence recognizes that it is not the center. It is not, you know, that, that this fungus, there's fungus and there's bacteria that are actively 
changing everything on this planet. And maybe we're just a byproduct of the work that, that they're doing in a non-intelligent way. And the aggregation of all this biomass and the effect it's having on the planet, um, you know, is kind of the, the, the center uh, of what's going on here. Uh, and again, step out, it's predicted maybe by thermodynamics, and maybe there's an, uh, a system of what's the better kind of energy absorber and dissipator uh, that, uh, that's kind of driving all that change um, in, in this yeah. particular system. Um, so, so, so I think that there, then you reach this, this evolutionary point where maybe civilization or intelligence realizes it's not, it's not the thing. And that the thing maybe is kind of the bigger picture, right? Um, it, maybe it is the, the, the bigger system that, that these molecules are all a part of. Yeah, um, I often say... And then, and, and then I think the, 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 the most likely thing that ends up happening is stuff that we have absolutely no concept of today that really is the transcendence of intelligence that, that we just can't see today. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Right. So, yeah, speaking of that, you know, people always say, oh, you know, I want to live forever. Actually, I see two different camps. People that don't want to live forever and people that do want to live forever. But people that want to live forever... Um, I say it's possible to do that right now. Uh, it just won't be you and your physical body. It'll either be in some avatar of you or, you know, try having children or biological or ideological. And we'll get to that when we hit my existential question, um, you know, format at the end of this episode um, coming up. But but the point being, you know, people are kind of greedy. They want to take their body and their house and their and their jet ski, you know, and live forever with it. But uh, but really, you can sustain things with your values or, you know, you could have some avatar, right, that, that encapsulates and codes every every state of your mind if you're a, a materialist. But then that begs a question for you, David, are they already here? In other words, I agree with you. It's much more, um, you know, kind of prudent for advanced intelligence to to be here, but in the avatar form or artificial form and, and not their physical form, you know, swapping, you know, sending their DNA or QNA or whatever they have uh, here to Earth. Uh, but why wouldn't that kind of presuppose as, you know, recently canceled uh, former uh, past guest on the podcast, Nick Bostrom, has suggested, you know, the super intelligence that will proliferate and we almost have to have the burden to falsify that such an intelligence isn't already here, you know, creating us in a simulation. So as you know, and all podcasts have to talk about aliens, Bitcoin and simulation hypothesis, at least in the science realm. What do you think about that? Could, could we actually be visited by extraterrestrial intelligences, but in the form of something digital, traveling at the speed of light, collecting information from sentinels and monuments throughout the galaxy? Um, I mean, I, I, I would say that humans are probably more programmed by the collective Internet than we are individually programming the collective Internet ourselves today. The Internet, so every, like some meta intelligence or the actual Internet? You could look, I mean, you could take a set of people or a set. You could you, you could kind of just take your human hat off for a second. There's some um, there's some way to draw a circle around things. And I, I would say, like, if you take the uh, all these computing resources that are connected together. Just that, call that the internet. And then the output is a bunch of photons and maybe the movement of speakers to make sound. Um, the, what's coming out of that collective system into your body is probably affecting your emotional conditioning a, a lot more than you're changing the way that that collective internet thing is operating. 
Mm. Many people stare at their phones all day and they're browsing and scrolling and photons are just being pushed into their eyes and sounds being pushed into their ears. And as they're browsing and scrolling, they're having dopamine reactions. They're having emotional reactions. They're going to change their behavior. They're, quote, learning things. (laughs) They're going to, quote, do things. Uh, This little device that you're holding is programming you and it's telling you what to feel and what to do all day long um, on a first principles basis. So I I, I don't know if there's this idea of like some higher dimensional order of simulation needed as much as the simple observation that, you know, we as humans and our concept of kind of centralized intelligence being like the human body and that's it Mm. versus recognizing that there is kind of a collective experience or a collective intelligence that is perhaps we're the edge of the node we're the edge of the network now and we're being kind of pushed stuff to to feel and say and do Mm. Uh, you know we sit in front of our tvs we uh sit in our iphones we're we're told a bunch of stuff The, the way we as humans interpret what's going on is there are other humans in that machine and they know stuff and they're telling me stuff you and i are talking to each other through a computer right now but really the reality is i'm sitting in a friggin' room staring at a piece of electronics, using my mouth to talk to it and changing how I am behaving because of how this piece of electronics is is kind of flooding me with photons and sound. Mm. And so um, I do think that, that we need to kind of just have this higher order point of view, absent the, the human brain um, intelligence concept, uh, that there is a collective thing going on. Mm. Um, I, I'm just like all about like, let's just not be human centric when we think about things. And you very quickly kind of have a different point of view on the world yeah. and the universe. We're talking about human to human, how these little black mirrors are changing our lives, uh, some ways for the better, uh, some ways is a challenge. Uh, so you're a father. I'm a father. Um, I've had the experience. I don't know if you've had this yet with your kids, but, you know, when I'm talking to one of them, they'll try to swipe, you know, my face to change the channel, so to speak, or change this. <laughs> they're, they're so used to interacting with things they can swipe. Um, what what? How do you react to technology and with your children and um, and you know what what do you see as sort of uh, you know practical ways do you put limits on uh, on this or you know how, how do you handle this? Whatever I say is going to be wrong. I mean, like, <laughs> so, I mean, we all I think all parents are so critical of their the limits that they allow their kid to kind of have with technology. I mean, I see my kids watching junk shows. I turn it off. I limit the stuff they're allowed to show. We try and do 30 minute max on iPad or something like that. But it's it's brutal to see how quickly captivated you are. But then I think back to my childhood. I mean, I was on friggin' cable TV for six hours as a 10 year old watching shows in front of the TV for hours on end. I don't know. I think I still was able to function later and was still able to have kind of learning capacity later. So uh, I can't be too judgmental. Um, you know, I, I, I recently got my kids playing a ps5 like there's this game that comes with the ps5 called astro's playroom mm-hmm. um and my kids like saw me playing and they wanted to play and so i taught them how to play and it's incredible how quickly they learned and how Ooh. good they got at it how fast oh, yeah. they got at it and i'm like holy shit like this is actually really cool seeing them advance and then they're thinking really critically and like physically like like we're, what's the the, the like, spatially i think is the answer um is the word um, thinking like uh, spatially, like where do I go and how quickly and how, and we started doing races on it and they got better and better. And then they started like uh, really thinking about it as a puzzle. And I'm watching them actually puzzle solve and respond quickly to stuff. And I was like, this isn't bad. I started reading some stuff on video games at an early age. And like a lot of kids that are engineers and software engineers and, and did really well, like you learn critical thinking through some of um, uh, that experience set. So, you know, I think those sort of things are, are kind of actually cool. I try and limit how much we do. We usually do like 30 minutes after dinner and then we're done. Yeah. Um, but it's hard, man. I, there's, there's like, there's no black and white. I'm, I'm not like a, all technology is bad guy. I also hate them watching these shows where it's like cheeky people. I, I care more about the values than I do about, um, them just watching shows. So if there's a show where the kids are like being mean 
or there's violence or there's cheekiness. That's mm-hmm. the stuff I don't want to have around because that's not the values I want them to learn. Um, if it's playing video games and doing puzzle strategy stuff, I'm fine with it up to a limit. Or like with everything, it's got to be up to a limit. Um, so yeah, that's that's just my orientation. I think yeah. just making sure that there's always the layer of values and the translation layer of values needed with this stuff. Um, and that if they have the right value system, they can kind of interpret things uh, in any context, whether it's watching a, a show or interacting with a kid on the playground in the right way. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, getting back to the physics and um, one of the topics we've already mentioned is the potential for energy and, um, you know, limitless energy, too cheap to meter. And that, of course, is fusion, you know, which obviously people were very excited about last uh, last December when an announcement came out of uh, out of uh, Berkeley Labs, uh, Livermore, that they had achieved. Livermore, yeah. Yeah, net ignition and um, that this had, had um, you know, been the culmination of billions of years and decades of work and, you know, the amount of energy it did produce net energy after taking everything into account, you know, the actual Q factor was positive, but that's only, again, you know, super, superimposing on it that, you know, tr- tr- you know, billions and trillions of extra megajoules that they had to put this thing together uh, and resulting in the energy required to boil, you know, a uh, to make a Starbucks venti latte. Um, uh, it's important, but as you also mentioned, there's a you know an, another approach which is perhaps more scalable called ETAR, the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor. It's a European um, uh, instrument in, in France. Um, you know the joke is, of course, David. Yeah, nuclear fusion is the energy source of the future. It always will be. Um, I like to point out, you know, we've had fusion for a very long time. It just hasn't been controlled or sustainable. Uh, and uh, I wonder how you react to Elon's, you know, claim that, you know, why do you need, you know, to to generate fusion? We've got this fusion reactor in the in the sky, and it's uh, it never goes on strike like my graduate students did. It never, you know, calls in sick uh, like I often do, or it never catches COVID. So you know, why not just go all in on, on solar or hydrogen or, you know, something else, or even nuclear fission? Why, why are we spending any money on this versus, you know, going all in on what we know uh, already works? And we have, you know, like you have uh, three nuclear power plants within a you know 20 mile radius. If you have a, a Navy shipyard nearby, as we do here in San Diego, so we got five nuclear powered aircraft carriers in the harbor right now. So so tell me, why should we spend any money on fusion? Uh, yeah. And we have a perfectly working one overhead that I like to study and we have many, many fission and other sources of energy. I've never seen investor technolo- technology investors or technologists become Luddites as quickly as they do than when you start talking about fusion. Um, it's really profound. And I think the reason is so many people are so, what, what a poker term I'll use, pot committed. They put so much money into this concept that like renewables are the kind of next transition phase for energy yeah. production on Earth. And as a result, guys like Elon, who's got this massive solar and battery business, wants to see that become proliferant and a trillion dollars and so on. And that's all very noble and useful and, and great. Fission is very noble and useful and great. And fission should be everywhere. Uh, we have a massive social and kind of regulatory regime problem um, that limits the proliferation of fission. As you know, um, getting approvals uh, 30 plus years and you know, no one, no one, NIMBY stuff, can't have it in my backyard. In China, they just, um, you know, started the pro- progress on building 450, I think, um, half to gigawatt uh, scale system. So they'll have half a terawatt of production coming online over the next whatever period of time here as they build out these fission reactors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm fully in support of a fission, um, but it is uh, completely burdened by this kind of 
a regulatory Although the new one, this Voyager, uh, V-O-Y-G-R, um, has been approved. Uh, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, it's a small-scale nuclear reactor. I'll, I'll send you small some. Small-scale, yeah. At 76 yeah. feet, but it produces 77 megawatts of electricity. And then uh, and then thorium is, you know, basically not not really employed, but it's much safer than than uranium, a traditional yep. power plant. Totally. So, yeah, look, I, by the way, so, so the bigger picture point is it's not an either-or. So, yeah. uh, I, I do think... I, you know, we can go through the kind of first principles and the macroeconomics on renewables. Like, there's a limitation on where they can go. The, the there's a massive carbon deficit to produce them. Right, you have to mine materials to make them, make all these renewable uh, production systems. Yeah, uh, you have to spend a bunch of money to build and install them. They're almost uh, completely unrecyclable in the solar plants. Or... They're unrecyclable and and they're not controllable. Uh, you have to have, as a result of kind of renewable capacity achieving baseload. You then also have to get batteries, and and then you have to mine a bunch of lithium, and uh, and there's a big carbon deficit to all the work that needs to go into making renewables, uh, you know, truly proliferate. I think we've just got to generally increase energy production uh, on Earth. So we've increased energy production by about twenty fold in the last hundred years on Earth. Um, I think in the next hundred years we can and should increase energy production by over a hundred fold. So we can't just kind of replace old systems and get some renewables. This doesn't solve the core driver, and the core driver is human consumption and, and consumption needs. We're replacing labor with machines. You know, we're moving around stuff more. There's so much about um, the, 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 the evolution of humans that's driven, as we talked about earlier, by this notion of desire. I have to consume more this year than I did last year to feel happy. If I don't consume more next year, I'm not going to feel like I'm ha- getting happier or I'm happy anymore. I'm unhappy when I'm consuming less this year than I did last year. I, I have less. So I'm consuming less and I'm, I'm unhappy. So the, the, the core driver of human civilization is, um, is this kind of consumptive pattern, which ultimately drives up energy consumption, which means we need to make more energy to make things more abundant, make them more affordable, make them more accessible. Right. Keep the heat down the treadmill going, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Give a, so I, I, don't, like, I think renewables are, are great to kind of do some decarbonization in the near term, great, but like, they're not going to kind of replace everything. Uh, fission has this regulatory. So we have to have a portfolio of stuff. Um, fusion, from a first principles perspective, as you know, works because uh, yeah. we see it working in the sky. So we know that this physics is real. Uh, oh, we we know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we, we know that the, the energy production capacity, we know what needs to go into it. We know what needs to happen. Um, and uh, and ultimately, there's nothing that that kind of limits um, I, I'd love your point of view on this, but like I say this and people get really like uh, upset because there's no reason that you can't have fusion ultimately reduced in scale to fit in a watch. <laughs> there's nothing about physics that says you can't have um, a magnetic containment field and have the necessary kind of fuel source and the control system in a watch. There's nothing that says physics has to be huge. All technology starts out really big. Mainframes are in a basement. They cost $15 million. They got cheaper. We all have a, a computer in our pocket now that costs $600. That is probably 100 billion times more memory and compute capacity than that mainframe. And um, so they get cheaper. They get faster. They get better. They get smaller. Um, fusion is in the like you know, pre ENIAC phase right now. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, we're kind of, it's, it's in the, it's in the coat hanger gum phase of transistor circuitry being demonstrated. <laughs> um, and the, 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 the first principles of physics say this is possible, this should happen. So a couple of years ago, three years ago, there was about seven um, venture funded fusion companies. Um, as of the end of last year, the, the, or uh, Q3 of last year, the, the count was 47. And I was speaking with an investor last week who told me that the count is now up to 70. So there are 70 fusion companies that are, that are um, pursuing different models of fusion energy production. Um, 
as you know, there's kind of the tokamak systems, there's the stellarator systems, and now there's these kind of pulse plasma systems like Helion and others, all of which have different physics underlying kind of how they're supposed to get the plasma to a hot enough and dense enough state to, to, to trigger kind of a sustainable or sustaining kind of fusion um, reaction regime. Um, in, in terms of like the, uh, the tokamaks, it feels to me like so much of what's driving the advances here and enabling them is similar to what I talked about with DNA sequencing, which is there's all these underlying digital technologies that in aggregate are enabling a cost down where suddenly the potential goes up and the possibilities or the probability of success goes up. So um, as you know, like so much of like um, uh, experimental like beam physics, uh, I used to work in the Center for Beam Physics in, at Lawrence Berkeley Labs for two years when I was an undergrad. Um, and they had like, a, this was back in 1999, the... Um, uh, this this plasma wakefield accelerator, mm. and you know they were kind of uh, trying to uh, build uh, I think GEV um, scale uh, 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 particle accelerators on a bench top in a meter right. by you know uh, creating a plasma and and it's like a femtosecond scale high energy laser pulse that kind of triggers a wave that kicks off the electron proton accelerates yeah so in a, in a short period of, of 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 physical space you can create what would otherwise take a giant cyclotron. Uh, in terms of energy um, to, to, to get these particles moving and, and then use them for kind of experimental applications, research applications. Um, and what's happened over the years, I think, is that the ability to kind of generate, you know, femtosecond scale or sub-femtosecond scale uh, sensing uh, technology and control technology and responsiveness and then the compute infrastructure needed to actually quickly compute and respond and drive what the sensor is telling you and drive an action in the chamber. Um, it has changed profoundly. And so much of the science is not science, it's engineering. It's about the electronic componentry um, that can very rapidly and accurately and precisely sense and then very accurately, precisely control um, yeah. a, a strong enough magnetic field. Um, and, and one kind of analogy I use when talking to people about fusion is it's like a, a giant balloon. And if you put a pinprick in the balloon, all the air gets out. That's what happens with, with a fusion, with, with, a, with a plasma if you cannot um, control it, the plasma will just kind of, you know, go away. It'll evaporate. Yeah. It'll, it'll, all the energy will push it out and it'll kind of go into the walls. Um, not in a dangerous explosive way, FYI, everybody. So it's just, you know, it's very, yeah. <laughs> very low mass. Um, and so, uh, so you have to kind of get the magnetic field. Now, the problem is that the magnetic field closes on the, the plasma, right? The, the plasma pushes back and it's actually dynamic how that happens. And that dynamic nature causes everything to kind of fall apart very often and very frequently. So you have to change it very quickly. So the, the, the componentry, the electronic componentry, the software, the digital tooling, um, all of these kind of underlying elements, new semiconductor, new um, uh, superconducting materials are allowing us to create much stronger, much more precise, and much more responsive systems that actually make this concept finally possible or more feasible than it was 50 or 60 years ago when it was kind of first theorized as being kind of this industrial concept. And as we've kind of stepped into trying it out, we're like, oh, wow, I got I to gotta respond at femtosecond scale to magnetic field distortion. <laughs> and, right. and then I've got to do it with this level of, of a magnetic field. And if it's even slightly off, it's, it's gonna, uh, the plasma's going to break. And so all of this ended up becoming kind of a series of builds that were enabled by new technologies. And I think now we're seeing this proliferation of plasma fusion technology concepts that are actually experimentally realizable that yeah. weren't 10 years ago or 15 years or 20 years ago. And that's the moment. It's like when DNA sequencing, we're like in the human genome project stage right now, where it's $100 million to sequence the genome. You know, 20 years later, it's $100. And I, I'm hopeful that's where we end up with, with, with these systems in plasma fusion. And yeah. obviously, 
the systems that require tritium as a fuel source are are kind of currently you know rate limited, and we got to go get tritium, and it's super expensive and hard to source, and so on. Um, I, you know, there's there's theories on how you can kind of resolve that. Then there's other systems that don't use tritium, and they're more attractive. So what I tell investors that call me on this and ask me about this, there's a portfolio of 70 projects. And, you know, the European project, the great one of big, the big bets in that portfolio. I'm not going to bet on any project in that portfolio today. I have no friggin' clue which right. one's going to get there, when they're going to get there, how they're going to get there. And you could be right, you know, principle. like the VHS beta, you could be right. Beta was better than VHS, but VHS proliferated and, you know, totally. Facebook and MySpace. Right. So you could be right, be early and be totally uh, off, off out of the money. Tokamak, Stellarator, Pulse Plasma with lasers. I don't know, but I'll tell you that across this portfolio of bets and and looking at things from a first principles perspective, the money is going in. The physics says it's going to happen. The first principles make sense. All the underlying technology trends are supporting the probability of success. And I would guess that this portfolio is going to yield a 95% likely outcome of us having sustainable, low-cost, fusion-driven energy in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm very optimistic about where things are headed because of first principles, underlying technology, and there's a ton of different bets. And it's great when there's a ton of bets. It's great when there's tons of companies all working on different ways of, of addressing the problem. And, um, and you know, uh, there'll, there'll, be a, there'll be winning things at the end. Going back to uh, first, the real first principles, uh, I'd like to submit, you know, it's Oscar season, right? Your, your parents are probably getting mailers and DVDs in the mail. <laughs> Um, so for your consideration, uh, David, with hum- with humility requisite of of a big fan of yours, um, for consideration for Science Corner, uh, scientists and astronomers have recently uh, detected what they claim to be the first stars ever to evolve in the universe, creating nuclear fusion, so staying on that topic. Um, and that was using the James Webb Space Telescope data. They claim to have observed a signature, which would be the hallmark of what are called population three stars. So for the audience members who may not be familiar, familiar uh, with this there astronomers believe we are currently in what's called population one confusingly and the very first yep. stars that ever existed population three and those were primordial gas clouds of uh, basically hydrogen that then uh, coalesced under gravity and immense pressure uh, causing a ignition of uh, the primordial hydrogen which is the relic of the big bang which is what i study the cosmic microwave background the formation yep. of of uh, a of molecular hydrogen or atomic hydrogen rather h you know just h hydrogen uh, with an electron, that recombination process, 380,000 years after the Big Bang, released the CMB that I study and looking for its uh, telltale signs of earlier epochs, like the uh, synthesis of uh, gravitational waves and nuclei. But anyway, these stars, you know, have this basic, you know, the simplest recipe possible, you know, take hydrogen, add gravity, and you get helium, which is exactly where the sun, uh, you know, the sun gets its name from. But by the way, did you know that helium was discovered on the sun, David? That helium was discovered on the sun? Yeah, it was not discovered on Earth. It yeah. was discovered from the spec from the sun. And actually, astronomers had to I go there. I must have known that at some point. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's good. Yeah. It was really heroic. Today, yeah. Yeah. You know, astronomers had to go to the sun at night to study it. You know, it's too dangerous otherwise. Um, no, they discovered it from its spectrum, obviously. And uh, that's spectrum, how we knew yeah. the new uh, fingerprint. Now, the same thing is yeah. happening with the very first stars, David, in the early universe. I'll send you a, a link to this paper, uh, which is, you yeah. know, tentative right now. But the signature has been long known that if you saw... Uh, singly ionized helium. So helium has two protons, uh, ordinary yep. uh, non-isotopic helium-3. Helium-4 has two protons, two neutrons, two electrons. And this, the hallmark of po- so-called population three, the very first stars, would be the observation of the spectral characteristics 
of a uh, singly ionized helium atoms in the early universe. And the astronomers claim that they've seen this, and there have been claims before, but this one is now using basically the, the one of the two main goals of the James Webb Space Telescope was to really illuminate, no pun intended, the era of, of reionization and the first stars to ever ignite by this process. So that would be population three. And um, it's really quite fascinating to me that this could be really the, the first light in the universe, not from the primordial uh, realm, but of ordinary objects that then provide the seed capital uh, to then create the stars that created the the supernova that existed in our solar system and our that caused yep. our solar system to create of which here's a fragment here i'm going to send you one of these david as i do to all my uh listeners who have a edu email address and sign up for my mailing list at briankeating.com list but these are fragments of the of the nuclear explosion of population two uh, that then yep. provided the seed capital as i say for population one so it's an extremely uh inspiring thing uh that we're living in you know this recently was released last week basically the claim of these data so i want to ask you um uh unless you have any thoughts on that as a as a possible uh, contender for a future science corner um uh where where you you know kind of would go now if you were um if you could go back and, and talk to the david of uh 2001 you graduated from cal um you could talk what would you advise sort of uh you know similarly or differently we're getting into the phase i call the the uh, existential question phase but uh, the name of the podcast is Into the Impossible. And that's from an Arthur C. Clarke quote, which says, the only way of determining the limits of the possible is to venture beyond them into the impossible. And I use that as a springboard to kind of get advice to, uh, to their former selves and my guests. And I'm going to ask you, if you go back to that 20 or 21, 22-year-old David Friedberg, 2001, graduate of Cal, what would you tell him to do similarly, differently, to give him the courage to do as you've done to go into the impossible? Advice to your former self. Yeah, it's hard. To, I'm sorry, but it's really hard to rewrite. I um, my meandering path, like everyone's, got us to where we are today. <laughs> and um, you know, there, there's nothing about today that I would say I would want to have be different in terms of my outlook for tomorrow, which is all I can really do with today. Mm. Um, and so it's it's hard to say. I, I I will tell people that I've had extraordinary diversity in experiences, uh, in my career and in my, um, uh, my kind of life and, uh, you know, the integration of those experiences, the synthesis of them, um, has been really important. I, I, Steve Jobs did such a good job with that commencement speech that he gave where he said, you know, take a, he took a calligraphy class and the calligraphy class led him to, um, having a uh, point of view that they should have fonts on the original Macintosh, which was one of the kind of defining features of the graphical user interface in the original Macintosh and really kind of revolutionized the personal computing industry. And it was because he explored this kind of unrelated interest at the moment that, that, that got him into that. Um, my uh, infrared astronomy lab as an undergrad um, gave me exposure to, you know, cooling down the CCD camera and, getting the data out of it, manipulating the data and kind of connecting everything from how are we collecting photons on this device all the way through to the data and computation, that, uh, computation of the data that comes off that device and then the interpretation of it that gave me a perspective that wasn't applicable in my personal endeavors to go and research using infrared telescopes, but gave me a set of tools and understandings that informed my ability to kind of do programming later because I used IDL at the time or 
uh, to understand how these sensors work, to understand how DNA sequencing work, to um, understand how much of um, how data and information kind of manipulation with matrices worked that was super useful to me later on in my career um, when working in software. Um, and I, I can give kind of a lot of different examples, but I, I just encourage everyone to not be kind of linear and, and, and unitrack in their, um, uh, in their, their work and their research in their exploration of interests. Uh, but to really kind of be intellectually curious and explore and try and do and learn in lots of different ways, you never know how things are going to kind of fit together later. Uh, yeah. that's always the big surprise. Um, yeah. and that's been the case for me time and time again in my life is, um, my ability to kind of take the next step often has been driven from some insight I drew from some experience I had that was totally unrelated to any track I'm on today from in the, the past and then realized an outcome. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, um, Kier- Kierkegaard yeah. said, I, I think, know. I think I, I, I mean, yeah, I would probably spend more time in, you know, bioengineering programming, computer science programming later, but honestly, like, uh, you know, when in 2003, I, I was kind of working at this job that I worked at for under a year and I taught myself um, programming and PHP, MySQL, uh, setting up a Linux server, Apache server. Uh, like I, I built the whole stack on a JavaScript and I built this kind of web service, this, this app called uh, Kadongo, which is like a question and answer research service. And it was like, I was working till four in the morning every night. And then at 8am I'd be in the office again and I, I would get home and I would work on it all night. And I, you know, and I kept, I read all the books on computer programming, wrote the whole thing myself, built a payment gateway integration, uh, set up an AdWords account, bought ads. This was back in 2000, early yeah. 2003 advertised, got all these people using it, made money from it. The whole kind of stack of the experience got me a job at Google. And mm. I would have never gotten a job at Google uh, with the it's, uh, experience that I had had without having done that on my own and having mm-hmm. kind of explored that work on my own. Um, and so I think like, yeah, that sort of like exploration of interest and just trying new things was so important um, in kind of charting my path forward. Yeah. yeah, I always love the quote by uh, Saran Kierkegaard who said, uh, you know, life you know, can only be understood looking backwards, but you have to live it going forwards, obviously. Did you know Andy Friedman, um, who was a Cal uh, grad, I think either a year before you or perhaps two years before you? He worked with Alex, too. Um, he uh, was a astronomer. Don't know him. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, he he passed away uh, about two years ago from uh, a rare oh, form sorry, of yeah. Hodgkin's uh, lymphoma. Um, so uh, pivoting to another existential question, if you've got a couple more minutes, that I always love to ask. It's, it's really prompted by uh, a quote that you almost uh, presaged earlier today, which is one from Arthur C. Clarke, the namesake of the institution that I associately direct, I guess you'd say, uh, which is that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. If you had to put on a monolith, like in 2001, you know, kind of the summary of the greatest achievements of the human brain, um, what would you put on it, you know, sort of a time capsule to have a little bit of bravado, swagger for the human race in terms of an intellectual or technological or, or even artistic triumph that human beings have, have been able to make that would last maybe for a billion years? The one or the many things? You could do as many as you like. Um, man, that's a tough one. I don't know the answer to that. Um, yeah, I mean, there's certainly a lot of principles in mathematics and physics. Uh, 
Feynman, Feynman no, said it was the atomic hypothesis that he wasn't a guest <laughs> on the show, unfortunately, but, but Feynman said, you know, the thing that encapsulates the most amazing amount of detail and the shortest amount of words is that everything is made of atoms. And these atoms have, you know, structures, substructures being on them that are governed by forces and fields. Um, I always turn to cosmology and, and so forth, but I've had people turn it to, um, to, you know, philosophy and theology, even an answer, you know, Andrewian, who is Carl Sagan's widow. She said, you know, she'd put on the monolith, you know, basically, um, uh, you know, act humbly, walk, uh, act justly, walk humbly with, without your God. She doesn't believe in God, but quote from Mika in the uh, old Testament. Um, so yeah, the, the the kind of you know magical technology. There's something about obviously that that infatuates you with technology. I mean, I think I don't I don't know what could be more profound that humans have kind of come across all things related to physics. We can kind of and mathematics. We can kind of resolve through. Um, I don't want to say rudimentary, but like or uh, elementary, but like yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, ele- elementary experimentation and demonstration. Quantum mechanics is just and remains to be. The, the mind-blowing transition of, like, all of physics, like, you know, the, the um, and, and the demonstrations in, in, um, in experimental quantum physics um, uh, probably have created the greatest transition for, uh, you know, our, our interaction with the physical universe. Uh, <laughs> and it, it continues to be not just profound, but... Um, staggeringly challenging uh, to, to kind of understand and connect and extensions into quantum field theory. Uh, I, there's, there's this kind of like, I don't want to say, well, I think the appropriate term is human uncertainty or <laughs> physical, you know, um, uncertainty about our, our ability to fully grasp and, and conceptualize uh, that within which we are, <laughs> uh, which we are within. Um, uh and and are fitting with it and um yeah i was thinking the other day what was i watching i was watching um some movie and i was like this guy if he relived this day he could have done it better and then i was thinking about groundhog day happy groundhog day again and and then i was like but every day that the individual arrived if you could reboot a day over and over again and and optimize and improve it would all the conditions be the same in that day and the idea being like look you could always kind of if you could capture the 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 location and the motion or the the velocity the the vector of every particle in the universe could you be perfectly predictive about what's going to happen in the universe um and then there's ways you can kind of disprove that to be the case using um quantum mechanics and then i was thinking if i got dropped into the same day over and over again would everything happen the same way that day every time I lived through it? Because um, my my presence in it with new knowledge or new information changes the quantum field of that universe. And so that universe, maybe the the, the, the formula of or the, the, the parameters of that, that quantum field is the state of the universe encompassing both space and time. And the so observer. Am I, and the observer. And yeah. the observer. And as a result, the fact that I've observed a, a day means that I cannot maybe observe the same set of conditions happening in day two because I've already observed them in day one. So can I really go relive the same day over and over again? Uh, and it really kind of struck me like that, that, that higher order concept that maybe there is a dimensionality that, that, you know, it's very hard for a human brain to fully grok. And I think, you know, quantum mechanics and the outputs of experience, certain experiments maybe give us a sliver of an insight into how, <laughs> how profound that is, you know, no, is, yeah. um, I don't know. 
Yeah, no, that's that. That is, of course, the most mysterious thing. And then the question of whether or not you know we could have a truly have a gut, not the super gut kind, but the grand unified theory, you know, remains a mystery if we yeah. can actually unify the, the three lower for or no, higher energy forces, strong, weak and electromagnetic forces with gravity as a theory of everything. Okay. If that's even possible. Um, next, I want to ask you to look into your crystal ball, not not necessarily a billion years into the future, but uh, but just to the biblical age of 120 uh, when uh, Moses, our Rabbi Moses, uh, failed to reach the promised land, hopefully we'll, we'll reach the promised land. But I want to ask you, he wrote what's called a Zava'ah, ethical will, um, which is an encapsulation of wisdom, not his monetary, you know, uh, you know, munificence that he's going to bestow. But, but I want to ask you, what would, what would be sort of something that you'd put in an ethical will when you reach that 80 years hence from now? Um, uh, what, what sort of wisdom or, or, or learnings and experiential uh, philosophy have you developed so far that you could see being of value, not just to your biological children, but to your ideological children, of which there are many around the world? Yeah, unfortunately, I think a lot of the sage wisdom is lost when it's just transcribed into a single sentence or statement. And yeah. it's so much more importantly, learned through experience or through meditation. Um, and it really is predominantly driven by the loss of ego. And the loss of ego in the sense of space and time and selflessness and so on um, is, 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 you know, the ultimate kind of ethical pursuit, I believe, of a conscious, intelligent body uh, or, or could or should be it manifests in lots of ways, like being giving. Uh, you know, being selfless, helping others, uh, having empathy, um, recognizing that one's own contributions to, to the world are 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 um, are going to come and are going to go very quickly. Uh, you know, um, not getting torn up and broken up by certain things, and there there is no one that fully you know encompasses the loss of ego um, and uh, you know the uh, the ability to kind of uh, get there can be written in, and has been written in many different ways. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, it is, I think, ultimately, the thing that has made humans, um, as we kind of view these biological masses, we call humans, like the, the, the quote, you know, best energy absorbers. <laughs> Although we could argue that maybe we're not, um, you know, but we think we are uh, on this planet, but, but so proliferant uh, is our sense of ego or desire to consume and to, 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 to find our place in the world and the universe. And has allowed us to manifest knowledge in the form of engineering and so on and change the, the universe around us and get things we want. Mm -hmm. um, so it's very powerful. It's also very destructive and uh, it leads to unhappiness and it leads to hurt and war and despair and so on. Um, and so it's uh, it's very hard to say if all humans abandon their ego, abandon ego, that we as a species would not lose out on the ability to continue to accumulate knowledge and engineer things around us to improve. And so perhaps there's a balance of ego destruction or having some perspective there on having empathy and, and being caring and being having a sense of ethics around um, selflessness uh, that can perhaps be used to better motivate us to do the things we intend to do. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's a famous quote by Rabbi, I think his name is Chaim Bardicha, who said that uh, a man should carry around in his uh, pockets two pieces of paper. In one pocket, it says the universe was made for me, which is a, a quote uh, from Genesis. <clears throat> and the other one is another quote from Genesis. Uh, uh, I am nothing but dust and ashes. You know, balancing that, that, that the balance is always yeah. so hard, right, David? To, it's easy to be polarized. And uh, I love the fact that you on, on, on your, uh, you know, show you, you're, 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 a mo you're a radical moderate in that you're not interested in the pol political polarization so much. You're interested in the talk list, the, the core facts. 
and, and the, the heart of the issue. But it's very difficult to be in the middle, right? There's a Yiddish proverb that he who stands in the middle of the road gets hit by traffic from both sides of the street. Um, but I, I right. want to commend you for that. And um, what, what other, besides the Into the Impossible podcast, uh, what else is on your uh, daily driving rotation? What do you, what do you uh, listen to besides uh, your own show and, and uh, hopefully the Into the Impossible podcast? I, look, I've been a fan of, of Lex Friedman for a while. He's great. We got to hang out a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he obviously goes deep and, um, yeah. uh, you know, spends quite a bit of time with his, with his guests. I enjoy it. Uh, I, I actually just do a lot of audible books. So my, my biggest thing oh, okay. is, uh, uh, I find it, uh, I have issues with my, my vision. Um, so I have mm-hmm. a hard time reading physical books lately. Uh, so I, I listen to a lot of audible books. So I'll take long walks or while I'm driving, uh, listen to audible books and try and crank through them. Uh, mix of fiction and nonfiction. So I'm kind of all over the place. Believe mm-hmm. it or not, I'm in my my Bravo TV Real Housewives moment right now. Where I'm listening to the Prince Harry book Spare. Uh, oh yeah, I, 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 yeah. It, it Audible promoted it to me, and I'm like, okay, I'll give it a shot. I put it on. I have no interest whatsoever in the Royals or anything. I put it on in the car the other day. I was thinking I'd, I'd give it five minutes, and because it was like a free promotion, like, and then I'm just like listening to the guy. I'm like, this is basically like eighth grade writing. But it's yeah. super like like it's super addictive and compelling. And I like it is. Yeah, my wife caught me watching her, her Netflix yeah. show. I was like, oh, I'm watching yeah. uh, Fauda. I'm watching Fauda. No, no, totally. honey, don't. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna put it in the and chat. I, like, I have zero. I have zero palace intrigue. I have zero interest. I don't know any of the, 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 the cultural references. Yeah. But, um, no, yeah, it's, I don't it's, know why it was just like it's a, cotton candy. You know, sometimes you need a you need to drink an actual sugar filled Coke. I'm putting in the chat a link to a book that I know you're gonna love called The Mind of a Bee. Uh, by Lars uh, Chitko, who's a, a, a researcher, I think, in, in Europe. But he, he kind of presents from, you know, it's the classic Nagel, uh, you know, can you, what is it like to be a bat? Um, but it's written from the perspective of perhaps the the um, uh, ingestation of new sensory kind of uh, uh, perceptions that we could develop as human beings, you know, like not just Neuralink or whatever, but what if we are kind of like a blind man in the forest or, you know, holding the elephant? We don't have these, we don't have these tools that a bee has. And yet, you know, bees have co-evolved with humans for, you know, literally 50,000 years. They found with Neanderthals and Denisovans, they found like honey and, and, and it's the most calorically rich um, a substance that's naturally available in the world before, you know, Coca-Cola and uh, high fructose corn syrup. And so how do their yep. brains actually react? And, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a model for how humans can be and also, um, you know, collective hive mind network. I, I know you're going to love the audiobook is awesome. My, my kids, even my, my, my 12 year old loves it. Um, OK, last question before we, we break and our bladders burst from this three hour almost interview. Um, really? Has to, that's good. Well, yeah, it's been 232. 232. But, okay. but hopefully we can get, we can keep, we can keep going for a few more minutes. Um, the final question I like to ask is also pertinent and it comes from uh, uh, Sir Arthur C. Clarke. I got, I got mind of a bee lined up, by the way. All good. Yeah. You're going to love it. Uh, if you don't, okay. your money, I'll, I'll pay you back for it. Um, uh, okay. I ha- I'm going to hope to have him on the podcast because he's just a great writer. Um, um, so Arthur C. Clarke said another thing. He said a lot of cool things. He said, you know, for every expert, there's an equal and opposite expert. You know, which kind of reminds me of Feynman. Feynman said science is the belief in the ignorance of experts, not in the wisdom. Right. Of, you know, if, if, if Newton had been the final word, he would never have been questioned by Einstein. Right. And we'd be stuck with, you know, with, uh, you know, instantaneous gravitational transport. But anyway, another thing that that um, that uh, Sir Arthur said was when an elderly but distinguished scientist says something is possible, he is very probably right. But. 
when an elderly but distinguished scientist says something is impossible, he is most likely wrong. I'm not calling you elderly or you know, about a, a decade younger than me. But um, what have you changed your mind about? What have you been wrong about? Is there anything that you've, you know, come maybe been a little bit humbled by, which I, I always find if you search in Google, which you, you know, you work with Larry uh, a while back, but if you search in like the following phrase, it was the best thing that ever happened to me, David. The most likely words to appear before that, I did this once, are I got fired or, you know, she broke up with me or, you know, something something that would in the moment seem, seem negative. Yeah, I know it's true for me. I got fired from Stanford University as a postdoc and ended up now I'm talking to you. And then the through line is, is completely clear in retrospect. But have you been wrong or have you had something that you've learned about that in the moment, maybe you, you were you were convinced could, you couldn't be wrong about, uh, but you actually, you know, uh, in, in retrospect, have learned from this, this, uh, this situation where perhaps you were, you know, had a lot of cognitive bias towards believing you were correct. Um, trying to think about what I, I, I generally totally agree with the, the sentiment that, you know, we have to hold both views in our mind. This is also why I'm very boring. If I had a podcast on my own, no one would listen to it because <laughs> I'm not stimulating with a strong prediction or an extreme statement uh, one way or the other. And I think stepping up a level and viewing the bigger picture is more important to thinking about uh, the reality of things, again, going back to dualism, it's not one or the other, it's all, it's both. And um, in some cases, it's a probability, going back to quantum mechanics, it's a probability distribution function of things that may happen. Um, and, uh, you know, I often kind of think this way about the things that may happen, uh, you know, being a likelihood of happening. We used to do these, um, uh, uh, you know, when you build like a software-based model, you're predicting an output, uh, uh, you're predicting an event. And when you train a model, you build a reliability plot if you want to visualize how accurate the model is. And the reliability plot on the x-axis is, uh, you know, how frequently does the model say something is likely to happen? And the y-axis is how frequently did those events actually happen? So mm -hmm. each one goes from zero to 100%. And all yeah. of these models follow an S-curve. The, the, the reliability plot of nearly any predictive model at some point, at some point in the history of the universe, will resolve to some S-curve. And it will resolve to an S-curve because the things that the model says will never happen happen with some degree of frequency. And the things that the model says will always happen will happen with some degree of frequency. There is no such thing as 100% or 0% uh, you know, kind of predictive um, uh, power. So, um, so, so th th that, that's, I think, like a really important general <laughs> kind of orientation. I try and make sure I, I remind myself of as often as I can so I don't get in trouble uh, being 100% convinced or 0% convinced of things. Um, and now in, in my particular life, I, I, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not fully sure. Um, there's a lot I've learned about um, how, how much humans can be convinced of things and polarized into things that I did not really appreciate when I was mm -hmm. younger. Um, and, and there's a binary nature. Here's a good one. Um, probably kind of um, the idea that there is, and I know most people hold this belief in some realm, that there is some nefarious central force or power that is influencing and doing things in a negative way that is that is oriented around evil. Mm -hmm. um, that these people are bad and they know they're being bad and they're doing it to be bad. Hmm. And I think the thing that I've really been convinced of is that so many people um, make decisions that are really, in their mind, decisions for good. Uh, decisions that may, in some cases, be adverse for some groups and may be viewed that way and for some groups maybe are being viewed another way. But the, the core motivation of nearly everyone is that they're doing good things for good reasons. <laughs> like, that's just... Yeah, that's, that's, 
we have this narrative. Yeah, no, I love what you said earlier, you know, that, that we have this narrative and we can backfill in and you can talk about what your wealth is going to do. And, but it's, it's, it's this, it's survivability by it's survivor by, I mean, yeah, you're at this point, but you're going to backfill the narrative because that's what we do. And you're going to make yourself portrayed in the best light. That's, that's why I like to ask the question. Cause you know, it, 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 part of being a scientist is, is being wrong all the time. And I imagine as an investor, as an entrepreneur, you know, you're going to be wrong. It's a power law. You're like your best, your best possible, you know, uh, uh, ideas are going to result yeah. in, in the 10x return, but there's going to be 10x fewer of so, them, right? So so I we're going to be wrong and to say, well, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, to not learn from your mistakes is, 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 you know, I think it's the sign of someone can't get to where you are, yeah. or, you know, hopefully where I am without it's having made way more mistakes some than evil person than out there doing bad things. I think there's something about the human mind in a social system that orients around there is some element in control that is keeping me from having things I want. And then so much of politics and social engineering and business is all about get, re wrestling control away from that which is in power. Um, and it is the ever kind of evolutionary cycle of social systems um, between humans. Every and, and again, going back to this point about individual desire, I want things I don't have today. And I rationalize that there is someone or something that is keeping me from having those things because I don't have them today. If I don't have them today, something's wrong. Something's unfair. Something's unjust. Someone is holding it that someone else has the thing I want. And there's some reason that the system, that the social system that I have to be a part of has made that the case. So what happens in politics is there's often a manipulation around identifying the things that people think they don't have um, or that they want that they don't have, and then rationalizing that the reason you don't have it is X, and then manifesting a political platform around, I'm going to get you X. Now vote for me and I'll go be the person that will get it for you. And that's so much of politics. Right. And it's also so much of human behavior. It's like, 100%. I want to build this business because I want to have more wealth because I want to do this thing. And I have to go wrestle that money away from the big evil corporation or the food system is controlled by X or the banking system is controlled by X. There's some reason I don't have X. And that reason is some, um, you know, kind of system or person or, or entity that has control and power over me. And that is so much of like the human uh, dynamic. And again, it relates to ego because your ego is challenged because there's something bigger and more powerful than you. And so your ego is threatened and so you, your ego wants to kind of flash out and attack and, and go after it. Right. It's yeah. It's the anti-authoritarian influence. It's like we are losing agency, which the only thing we control are these chemicals that we call our brain. You know, people always mock me or, you know, often mock me because I, I am a, you know, practicing Jew. I may not be, you know, the most devout Jew, but, but you know, why do you study this, you know, this thing written by Bronze Age peasants and what can you learn about, you know, cosmology from? I'm like, well, first of all, there's only like 35 sentences out of 35,000 total verses in the, in the Torah and the Old Testament have anything plausibly to do with the creation of the universe. And it's obviously not a science book, if that's the case. If you had a book and, you know, if this book, The Mind of the Bee, you know, has one page out of a thousand about the mind of a bee and the rest of it's about like the Oliver North trial or something, you know, you're gonna be like, what the hell is this? Look, it's, it's not accurate uh, advertising. But there's one scene as you as you as you just mentioned, made me think of it. Uh, there's a rebellion by Korok, who is one of uh, Moses's, you know, cousins, basically a fellow Levite 
And he says exactly what you say. He's like, it's too much for you. You, you want this control. And like, who said, you know, who put you in charge? God, and like literally. And then he organizes this whole like test. And how can you find out, you know, if I, if people should follow me? And most people were going to follow Korach, who is the rebellious, the rebel against Moses. And it, it took a miracle for God to show that, you know, whether or not you believe that, but it's deeply ingrained in human nature to rebel against this, this notion of, I am not an agent over my own control. And I think that's what gives meditation, you know, such, such, you know, such a benefit in a, I'm, I'm horrible at, but, you know, I like, you know, have, have an app set up that screams at me. If I, if I start thinking about something, that's not my mantra, you know, I actually have the honor of having Deepak Chopra gave me a mantra and it's, uh, it's actually a nice one. It's Shalom. Uh, but I thought he was going to tell me it's schmuck and you know, I should just use that as a mantra, but, but at any rate, yeah, surrendering the ego uh, is the hardest thing to do. And because you need a little bit of swagger to be a good scientist, to be a good inventor, to be a good father. Uh, but it's that basis, not it's standing in the middle of the road and not getting hit by traffic. And you know, I just want to thank you uh, so much, David, for sharing so much of your valuable time. You'll send me a bill for it later, I hope. Um, but it's it's a great joy. And I hope we can meet in person someday, either up there or down here or wherever in the middle that uh, we can meet. But uh, I want to thank you. Uh, anything you uh, that I, I want to ask you one last question, which is, what uh, I'm sure there's millions of questions that you uh, get asked that you're sick of asking, get, getting asked about. Is there anything that no one's ever asked you about that you're like really interested to talk about? Um, not just me. I mean, I, I probably failed numerously throughout this conversation, but any things that you like are really interested in that people don't know? I mean, I didn't know how meditation impacted your life, you know, as it's clear that it does. Um, and I can recommend some some uh, some colleagues and friends in, in that space, too, if you're interested. Uh, but. Are there any things that, you know, most people don't think to ask you? Oh, I mean, the stuff we talked about today is stuff we never talk about. I never, like, human consciousness and, and the impracticality of aliens physically visiting, you know, uh, uh, other planets and, you know, solar systems and so on within a galaxy or other galaxies. And um, so, so much of the stuff today is stuff, you know, it's never a great forum to talk about. It's actually kind of fun stuff I think about a lot geek out on a lot um so no that was the sort of stuff that i would always be like more interested in having awesome. conversations these kind of deeper more interesting things about you know where are we what are we where are we headed um, yeah it's the it's the reason so you know that ma makes us really human right that we can think about the meaning and we're the only species that's what homo sapien means it's the one who has knowledge that he is going to die <laughs> and i think yeah we we get so lost in the like the the materialism and the and the you know wealth creation or scientific creation and so forth yeah we we don't have as much time and it's almost shunned upon to think about like the meaning of life or theology or philosophy even and physics is derided often so yeah i love it i, I always say a podcast is an, is an excuse for me to talk to people i want to talk to <laughs> rather than people i have to talk to some contractor in chile at seventeen thousand feet all right my friend well great well, talking to you bye any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic Thanks for listening to part two of this two-part episode of Into the Impossible. And don't forget, listen to the equally compelling part one. Please subscribe, rate, and review us. We love hearing from listeners. For a chance to win your very own bit of space dust in the form of a meteorite fragment, subscribe to Brian's mailing list at briankeating.com list. Thanks for listening. And remember, always be curious. Thank you.